60 years ago this week, Ed Harrell and a number of other sailors were pulled from the Pacific. They had survived four and a half days afloat after the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. It's four days that, as you might imagine, Ed Harrell has never been able to forget. I have not had nightmares. I've had uh, many times that I've uh, awakened and uh, have a vivid scene of the happenings. And yet, I think my, uh, my counteraction to that is that uh, thank you, Lord, for sparing my life and for bringing me through all of this. This is Family Life Today for Thursday, August 4th. Our host is the president of Family Life, Dennis Rainey, and I'm Bob Lapine. We'll hear how God spared Ed Harrell's life today, and we'll hear a remarkable story about a rescue in the middle of the Pacific. And welcome to Family Life Today. Thanks for joining us. You know, Hollywood has told some tales of castaways left on a desert island, um, folks surviving in in the middle of nowhere. And I've seen some of those movies, and, and you watch them, and they're interesting. They have never come close to telling the story that we've heard this week. No, I agree, Bob. Ed Harrell has uh, been with us all this week and has told a story, a compelling story of how God enabled him to survive an ordeal at sea after being uh, a crew member on the USS Indianapolis, uh, which was sunk on the night of July 30th, 1945, by a Japanese submarine. And, uh, Ed, I I just uh, want to thank you for, again, for your service as a veteran, uh, but also for writing this book and for taking us there and giving us a greater appreciation, not just for veterans and what they've done to protect our freedom as Americans, but but also for taking us there and showing us what tough-minded faith in Almighty God looks like. Because time and time again, you've taken us to vivid scenes where You've been at a fork in the road where you've had to trust God, and, and you'd been at sea for four days in a life jacket. You'd only had a few tablespoons of water. You had some rotten potatoes that had come after you'd prayed for some food, been separated from your buddies, and on the fourth day, you're virtually alone. No question. Mm-hmm. Even with uh, my buddy at the time, and in fact, there were three of us at, at the kind of the tail end there of that fourth day, and uh, the one then dropped his head in the water, and he's gone, and then it's just McKissick and myself. And uh, my mind by now is beginning to, uh, to fail me somewhat in that McKissick, I know, would say to me, uh, hey, Marine, you ever been to the Philippines? And uh, no, I've never been there. Well, he had, and he promised to you know, kind of take me under his wing. Uh, when we got there, and uh, and yet uh, I knew him. I knew who he was. I'd served under him, and he was a peach of a guy. And yet, to me, he was Uncle Edwin, and I called him Uncle Edwin. I had an uncle two years older than me. Uh, I, I guess I was, uh, you know, thinking of the good times in my mind with uh, with someone back home, and uh, and yet McKissick was Uncle Edwin to me. Hmm. And then uh, it was sometime then that uh, afternoon. You know, we've seen the planes, uh, heard them 30,000 feet, and uh, I say to McKissick, 
uh, I hear a plane. And uh, he says, uh, I hear one too. And uh, if you can uh, kind of imagine somewhat that you, you hear a plane and you know that it's somewhere coming closer, and yet you don't know which direction it is. And we began to look all around, and finally we could detect that it's coming from that direction. Was it coming toward you? It was coming toward us. And um, it was flying about uh, 8,000 feet. And, uh, well, what do you do? i tell you what you do. You, you scream, you splash water, you, mm. you, know, you, you make all kinds of contortions uh, there in the water, hoping and praying that he could see you. But uh, here he's flying over us, and had he come any further, he would have gone over us. But when he got like a quarter of a mile or so out here at flying at 8,000 feet, he headed it straight down toward us as if he knew we were there. But he didn't know we were there. Impossible for him to see us. If we had had on Deer Hunter Orange and he knew we were there, he could not have seen us. In fact, uh, the pilot that later picked us up, he said, the possibility of him seeing you would be the equivalent of taking the cross-section of a human hair and looking at the end of that human hair at 20 feet. Hmm. He said, impossible for him to see us. So why did he go into the dive? Why did he go into the dive? That's the miracle uh, of the angel coming for us. And that is the end of the fourth day. Well... I've talked to Lieutenant Gwynn different times. and uh, He was the pilot? He was the pilot. Mm-hmm. And he was flying out of Palu, and uh, he was flying a, a land-based plane, uh, something like a B-29, a twin-engine plane. And as he was flying, he had left out that morning, and he had a, had a problem with his, uh, uh, with his antenna that kind of trails at the back of that aircraft. And uh, the stabilizer on that antenna had come off. And uh, they had put something on, and he went out and tried it, and it didn't work. They came back in, and then uh, they put something on, and here they go again. Uh, So as he's flying over us, and here, as I mentioned, here he's coming just at a point that he can nearly dive right down to us. At that point, he he had gone back to uh, the bomb bay door, and he'd opened the bomb bay door, and he was reeling in the antenna. And while he had that Bombay door open, he looks down uh, at a split second there in the late afternoon of the fourth day when the sun was setting on us late in the afternoon, and he saw the little mirror, so to speak, of the, of the, of the sun hitting on the oil on our clothing. And, hmm. and when he saw that, uh, he thought it was a, a submarine down there. So he, he immediately he rushes back to take over the controls, and the boys in the aircraft— they yelled back at him with all that noise, you know, and the, with the motor still riven up. So, and, uh, you know, what is it? What is it? And he said, look down there. And uh, they looked down and they could see the oil slick. Well, my story is this, that we see him coming. And uh, as if God had planned it for us, you know, here he, when he gets to about a quarter of a mile from us, he heads down and he comes down and he circles us. And as he circles us, then he he tilts his wings a few times, you know, and, and then he leaves us. He goes back up, and he circles us again up here. And we wonder, well, what in the world is he doing up there? Well, he can't land on the water. We knew that. But what he did, he came down, and he saw that there was someone down here. He goes up, and he breaks radio silence to declare ducks on the pond. Now, he didn't know whether we were Japanese or American boys, but he broke radio silence to, to declare ducks on the pond. And then he comes back down then, and he circles us again. He tilts his wings a time or two to give us assurance, you know, that uh, we know you're there. We don't know who you are, but we know that you're there. And then he drops a life raft in. 
And in the meantime, then, he's radioed back into uh, Palu, and uh, the next uh, pilot then gets into a, a PBY that could land in the water, and uh, Adrian Marks then, uh, he's on his way, you know, to come and to pick us up. And uh, sometime later, then he arrives, and uh, in the meantime, the raft that uh, Gwen had dropped, uh, I know my, my friend uh, McKissick had made his way to the the raft, then he's leaving it, and I wonder, well, you know, what's wrong? And I get to the raft then, and it was bottom side up. I tried to get it turned over, managed to get it halfway turned over, but uh, the CO2 on it was uh, was torn off, so I couldn't inflate it, and no food, no water, no nothing. <laughs> uh, kind of a, a torn place in it, and uh, so it wouldn't even uh, hold me just to stand on that, so to speak, on that pile of rubber. And uh, in the meantime, then uh, McKissick had gotten far enough away from me that uh, the PBY landed and had picked him up. And then I wondered, well, will he tell him that there's a Marine out there with him? And, uh, well, he did. But it was a period of time that the plane seemingly, I couldn't see it, but he was running the swells. They were like 20-foot swells, and he'd run the swells back and forth trying to make his way over to me. And it took a period of time for him to run those to where he could get across because if he had turned uh, those props into uh, the water, it would have flipped his plane. Right. And and he pulled a no-no when he landed. It, it was against all regulations for him to land his plane in the open sea. And yet he did because as he landed, he could see – he said he could see more sharks than he saw boys. And we were scattered over like a 75-mile area, and he took reconnaissance of that and could see that wow. there, there are boys in, in uh, life rafts, there are boys on uh, floater nets, and there are stragglers. And uh, then he actually saw uh, a shark attack on, on uh, several boys, and he was determined that uh, he was going to land, and he cleared it with the rest of the crew. They all voted somewhat that they would take the punishment, but we've got to land. So they landed then, and uh, then uh, finally then they came over me and uh, threw out a little life ring and picked me up. I recall that as they got me out of the water, I I blacked out or nearly blacked out. I had no control over myself. And then they got me aboard uh, the plane then, and uh, they would take me like a sack of feed and set the guy here, and the next guy just stack him against him, and they kept stacking us in there. And then finally it wouldn't hold anymore, and there were still some boys uh, uh, stragglers out there, and it was getting dust dark, and they picked up all that they could, all that they could find, and they, they actually fashioned them out on the wings. And then uh, finally then, sometime later in the night, then they, uh, the seas calmed down after night somewhat, and they uh, uh, shut off the motors, and we sat there and waited till uh, oh, 12, 1 o'clock or so in the morning when the little destroyer Doyle came in, and they, they picked us up. But when I got aboard the plane... After a moment to aboard the plane, then I, I could look across at uh, at a marine, and I could see that it was a blonde-haired guy. I could see he had the uh, eye, eyeballs that were just big red sores, and I knew it was Spooner. Mm. And um, I, I I saw what he was doing. He had a can of green beans, and he was feeling down on the deck of the ship, and uh, he finally found a stud bolt or something down there, and he took that can of green beans, and he kept hacking away till he knocked a hole in the can of green beans, and then he was turning that juice up and drinking it, and I, I recall the, uh, saying to him, uh, uh, hey, Marine, how about uh, some of your bean juice? Well, you'd have to know Spooner, but he kind of told me where I could go. And then, <laughs> then he, this, this is the guy that you saved his life right. by grabbing him and, by the... 
life jackets then, on, on day two, right? Yeah. Then I said to him, uh, Spooner, you don't know who this is. This is Harold. Well, I didn't have to say anymore. He just kind of fell across the plane there toward me and and kind of spilt some of his bean juice as he shared that uh, that with me. And then I was transferred then aboard the, the Doyle and uh, that sometime that night, one o'clock or so that night. And uh, Ed, when he, when he lunged across that plane, the floor of that plane to give you the bean juice, was that kind of an emotional, I, I can't even imagine. I mean, he's alive, you're alive. Well, it, it's what you'd said two days earlier. You said, you and I are going to get out of here. It was emotional for me as much as I'm sure for him just to see that that he made it, you know, because I didn't know any time that fourth day. I, I knew not where Spooner might be. And then to be able to see him there and see that he was alive. And I recognized him as soon as I looked across the plane and, and saw those eyes. I knew I knew it was Spooner. When you first heard that plane, when it started to dive and, and was tilting its wings at you, you thought, we're going to be rescued. Yeah. I, I would think you'd just weep. Well, you know, there's times when you weep and there's times when you weep for joy. You know, I, I look back on, on this and uh, when I look at the, well, the first day that I had ever assurance that somehow, some way, the Lord's going to see me through. I felt that from the very moment that I went into the water. Mm-hmm. And then on the second day, then when the, he provided the water for me, the rain you know, you, you, have to, you have to just say, thank you, Lord. I know that you're, you're speaking to my heart and uh, that somehow, some way, you're going to see me through. And then on the third day, then when the little raft came into the group, and you you know that your life jacket no longer is holding your head out of the water, and now you have a spare life jacket that he provided for you, and you have to thank him again. And then sometime then that uh, the third afternoon, likewise, when uh, when you're starving for still for water and for some food, and then for him to provide the uh, you know half rotten potatoes, uh, you know I have to have to thank you know. He's still with me. Mm-hmm. And as I look back on that, you know, I think of the water of life. You know, if you drink of this water, you, you're going to thirst again. If you drink of that salt water, you're, you're not going to make it at all. But if you drink of the water that I give you, mm. you, you you'll never thirst again. And, uh, and then the bread of life then uh, of the potatoes that I had. And then when I get uh, kind of to the last day, then that plane that came in, well, you know, it's like the, the Lord says, uh, uh, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you, and since I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again, and I'll receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be, may be also. And so here he's coming. For me at that time, he came for me in in the person of uh, Lieutenant uh, Gwynn as, uh, as he came. So I look back on the whole experience, and uh, I think I have to say that it's a, uh, it, it, it's, it's a wonderful experience uh, to have lived through, and I just praise and thank the Lord, uh, you know, all the time for for His mercy and for His grace. Unworthy as I am, and yet He saw fit to uh, to spare my life through this ordeal. Mm. You know, you mentioned that it was two years before you shared anything with your father. Um, we got a letter. You may remember this, Dennis, from a woman whose husband had passed on, and she said it wasn't until the last years of his life, some almost 50 years after the battle had occurred, that she knew he'd been on Iwo Jima. They'd mm-hmm. gone their whole married life. She, she had never known that he was in that battle until near the end of his life. 
I thought to myself as I read that, it was another way that he was protecting and defending Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. by not sharing his story. Mm -hmm. And yet she wrote and she said, knowing that sure explained some of the nights when he would wake up in terror. Have you had that experience? Have you had the nightmares and the the terror of remembering some of that? I I have not had nightmares. I've I've had uh, many times that I've uh, awakened and uh, have a vivid scene of the happenings. And yet, I think my uh, my counteraction to that is that. Thank you, Lord, for sparing my life and for bringing me through all of this. And I, I think maybe I'd like to look at it and say that the Lord reminds me even today of of those incidents. And as he reminds me of those, then they help to strengthen my faith and my resolve, you know, to live a life uh, for him today. You mentioned that uh, that pilot ended up finding 56 survivors on that fourth day. Right. In total, there were 317 survivors. How did the rest of them all get picked up? Well, as soon as they picked us up and found out that it was the Indianapolis, then uh, all, all word went out. They broke radio silence everywhere. And any ship with it within a couple of hundred miles or so, uh, that is destroyer or something that could move fast, uh, they came to the scene. And when the USS Doyle the ship that picked me up, when it got uh, closer and closer, but what did he do, Commander Clater? He turned on his uh, powerful spotlights up on the under part of the clouds, and you can imagine what that did to that whole area. It was, uh, it was just like a mushroom with the lights underneath the clouds, you know. And for the boys that were out there, they, uh, they knew that rescue was there, and that gave them the hope that they needed, and some of those had to go through another night. It would be dangerous, you know, uh, as dark as it was, to try to take some kind of a craft out there and maneuver around without hitting someone. But that gave them uh, that gave them hope through the night until the next uh, next morning. Now I was picked up aboard then the Doyle off of the uh, the PBY. I, I know as they as they took me aboard, there was a couple of sailors that uh, there's no qualms about them uh, getting dirty or anything. And of course we were. We were grease monkeys, really, with all that oil and all on us. And uh, and I recall that they uh, took my arms and put them around their neck, and they drugged my feet, and they they took me down below deck, and then they began to they stripped off my clothing, and then uh, then be, they began to take uh, something like a diesel fuel or kerosene, and they began to wash that oil off of me, and then they had to be so careful with all of the salt water uh, ulcers that I had, and then uh, they put me in. Uh, a Marine being put in Navy skivvies, so they put the they put their Navy underwear on me, <laughs> and then then took you, me. You were okay with that at that I point. Was, I was okay. <laughs> in fact, I uh, may I just say that I I met the guy after fifty seven years. I met the guy aboard the Doyle that uh, actually cleaned me up. Wow! And uh, and he took me then to his uh, his bunk and gave me his bed, and then the corpsman then came and they. They had uh, a cup of uh, sugared water, warm sugared water, and uh, they gave me a, a, a couple of tablespoons full or so of warm sugared water, you know, to kind of uh, rehydrate me, I guess. Uh, tastes pretty good? It tastes wonderful. Yeah. It tastes wonderful. Sixty years after this happened, how many of the survivors are still alive? 
a week or so ago, I got a report. I think there was 97, mm-hmm. 97 of us still alive. Spooner? Uh, Spooner's gone. There's five of we Marines. Nine of we Marines survived. Mm-hmm. Out of uh, There were 39 of us aboard, and nine of us survived. And of the nine, there are five of us uh, still living today. How about McKissick? Is he still alive? Uh, no, McKissick's gone. Mm-hmm. And by the way, McKissick was not a believer at the time. And uh, McKissick told me later, he said, Harold, I went home, and I got to looking at all that the Lord had brought me through there. Mm-hmm. And he said, I was a churchgoer. I went to church all the time, but said I was really not a believer. And uh, he said, finally, I just uh, had to get down on my knees and thank the Lord and tell him that I trusted him as my Savior because I know that uh, he had a purpose for my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, he became a, a real Christian friend of mine then as long as he lived, passed away four years ago, maybe. Well, Ed, um, wow, I'm, I'm exhausted from, <laughs> from, from treading water here with you, but I, I, I have to say, what a great story. What a great story of, of uh, faith and redemption, God's providential care, and how you have uh, faithfully given him the credit and the honor for doing that. And I'm, I'm grateful for your book and, and uh, just pray that God will give you many great years of health and uh, many more great-grandchildren. And I appreciate you being with us here on Family Life today. Thank you so much. My delight, my pleasure to be with you. And you know, if uh, any of our listeners this week have missed portions of this story, we've got our interview with Ed available on CD. In fact, it's on two CDs, and we've been able to include on the CDs material that we weren't able to fit on the radio because of time constraints. We also have the book that you've written, Ed, which is called Out of the Depths. It tells the story of the sinking of the Indianapolis and of your rescue along with uh, the rescue of uh, the other sailors and Marines who were in the water uh, 60 years ago this week. Go to our website at familylife.com if you're interested in getting a copy of Ed's book or the CDs of our discussion At the bottom of your screen, when you're on our website, familylife.com, you'll see a little button that says Go. Click on that button, and it will take you to a page where there's more information on Ed's book, on other resources that we're recommending this week. You can order online at familylife.com if you'd like, or you can call 1-800-FL-TODAY, and someone on our team can answer any questions you might have about uh, these resources, or you can uh, order over the phone as well. 1-800-FL-TODAY is the number. The website, again, is familylife.com. And let me encourage you, especially if you weren't able to hear the complete story, to contact us and get a copy of the book and the CDs as well. And then let me also uh, ask you to consider this month making a donation to Family Life Today. We're a listener-supported program. Your donations are what keep us on the air. But we are asking folks if during the month of August you could make a donation to help with our financial needs, we'd like to send you a a thank you gift. A few months ago, we had Shanti Feldhahn in our studios, and we visited with her on a book that she's written called For Women Only. It's based on research that she has done with more than a 1,000 men all across the country, asking them about uh, what they need most from their wives. This month, we're going to make those available to you as a thank you gift when you make a donation of any amount to Family Life Today. You can donate online at familylife.com 
or you can call 1-800-F as in family, L as in life, and then the word today to make your donation. When you do, be sure to request the uh, CDs for women, or if you're online, when the key code box comes up, type in the two letters CD, and we'll know that you'd like to have the uh, Shanti Feldhahn CDs sent to you. And let me say thanks in advance for your support of this ministry. It is much needed, and it is appreciated. Well, tomorrow we're going to talk about some very profound theological ideas that even a three-year-old can begin to catch on to. Uh, We'll explain what we mean tomorrow. Hope you can be back with us for that. I want to thank our engineer today, Keith Lynch, our entire broadcast production team. On behalf of our host, Dennis Rainey, I'm Bob Lapine. We'll see you tomorrow for another edition of Family Life Today. Family Life Today is a production of Family Life of Little Rock, Arkansas, a ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ.